Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Keith. Uh, so Keith, Keith gave us a couple of things to read, a, a kind of blog post, and then, and then an appendix from, from a book that he's been working on. Uh, so my, my plan is kind of to, to take what I thought were some of the bigger points, and uh, maybe a couple of the smaller points, and, and say what I think you know, the arguments there were, and, and you know, maybe organize them a bit, a bit for discussion, and, and raise a few questions, and, and make some comments also. I think there's a lot of kind of little questions here. Um, some of them I'll ask, some of them I won't. Keith, you know, I don't think you're expecting you to answer all the questions. I might answer them even if you don't. Okay, great. Perfect, even better. Um, so the, the two pieces are, are on different topics, but connected by, by a theme. So, so the first thing was on uh, the question of our knowledge um, of, of whether or not God exists. And, and the second piece was on, on our epistemic standing with respect to our philosophical positions. So Keith thinks there's a connection between these things. So he thinks, um, well, he suspects that no one or, or at most very few people know whether God exists. And, and I think he thinks that our epistemic perspective with respect to our philosophical positions is the same. So we don't know those either. So uh, at least with respect to controversial philosophical matters, I put this in quotes in the beginning because I'm not sure quite how much hangs on it. He, he talks about that, but the thought is that, that with, if, if any of you have a position on a controversial philosophical matter, you don't, you don't know that thing. Uh, and actually, Keith wants to say, you don't even believe it. So, um, don't, don't really sorry, <laughs> you don't even really believe it. Maybe you believe it, but you don't really believe it. So. Um, yeah, th those, are, those are strong views. Okay, so, so one, one kind of small thing that I wanted to start with, because I think maybe Keith was kind of baiting me with it, so, so I took it up, which is, which is just the question of, of agnosticism, which isn't kind of the main view, but Keith takes himself to be an agnostic, right? I think? Yeah, in one way and not in another Right, in one way and not in another way. So the, one, the way in which he does take himself to be an agnostic, he claims, is the common sense term, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have very good access to the common sense of the term, but, but I'm, not, I don't, I'm not sure that this is it. So he says the agnostic doesn't take herself to know whether God exists. So if take just means believe here, then, then we're thinking of the agnostic as someone who kind of lacks a kind of higher order perspective on her, on her first order epistemic standing. So, so um, she doesn't have a belief about whether she knows, but I, but I take it someone who knows whether God exists or like is a true believer you know, uh, that God doesn't exist, or, or people like those can, can lack this sort of higher order perspective, and I mean, I don't know, I don't know what people think. I, think. I think that's not really the common sense of the term, so a true believer really isn't an agnostic. So, so that doesn't seem to me to be, to be right. I'm not sure, sure even that's the sense in which Keith thinks he's an agnostic. So, so, I mean, you could modify this by thinking that the agnostic takes herself to not know. I think there's similar problems there because that's compatible with these kind of um, first order true believer or first order knowing even, I take it. Um, I guess these are the sort of considerations that make me think that we want to say something about what's going on at the, at the, at the level of, of the agnostic's first order attitudes if we're really going to capture her state of mind, not just some metacognitive perspective. So Keith does say that there's another sense like this where the agnostic doesn't accept or believe either answer to the question of whether God exists, which I have as G question mark here. Uh, I, guess, I, I guess I don't think that's going to work either, 
but, but I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that. I'm gonna leave that there. Maybe we could take it up later, but, but I think that's moving in the right direction. Um, and I guess relevant here, which is coming out a few times in key thing is, is what sort of first order attitudes we have um, with respect to our philosophical positions and whether God exists. So there's talk about belief, there's really believe, there's accept. So uh, maybe some of those are compatible with agnosticism. Maybe there's different kinds of agnosticism, but, but uh, I guess it's interesting to think about, about how those are going to work out. So um, more, more substantive stuff. So um, he thinks, as I said, no one or, or at most very few people know whether God exists. Why does he think this? So this is what I have under two, the best shot at knowing. So he thinks um, the theists have the best chance of knowing whether God exists. Why is this the case? Uh, he thinks that nobody, neither the theist nor the atheist, can know whether God exists based on a philosophical argument. So the arguments uh, for the existence of God or the argument from evil. So no one can, can run an argument like that and know the conclusion. Um, and the atheist's only hope of knowing whether God exists is via an argument like this. He thinks the best chance is the argument from evil. Um, and so the atheist has no chance of knowing. The theist has, uh, has, a, has another kind of card up his sleeve, and that's, that's this other method for coming to know whether God exists, religious experience. So this is, this is the, sort, the sort of um, argument. I, I found this, I found this uh, really interesting and I guess surprising as someone uh, not working in this area. Um, so, so I had a few, a few thoughts about it and then, and then I'll say more after. One thing, and this is tying it into the stuff about about the, our philosophical positions, which is going to come later. So what's wrong with, with the philosophical arguments on either side? So I think what's wrong with them, uh, we're supposed to be able to make an analogy with, with philosophical arguments. And there, I think Keith puts a lot of weight on the fact that there's disagreement or dissent or controversy. So, so I wonder if that's what he's thinking here. I don't, I don't know. He doesn't say. So are these arguments just kind of lousy on their face? Um, independently of the fact that there are counter-arguments, or is, or is it something to do with the fact that there are arguments on both sides and, and uh, something like that? So, so that's, that's a kind of, um, I don't know, th thing that I'm curious about. The other thing is, is maybe, um, I, guess, I guess coming into this, I would have thought the atheist has the best chance of knowing whether or not God exists. So, so a couple things on that, I guess. One is, I wonder why the, the atheist needs to turn to, to these sorts of philosophical arguments. Right? We can know lots of things don't exist without arguments like this, so, so there's something different about this case, I take it. I think, I think, again, Keith thinks that this has something to do with controversy or disagreement or, or the fact that there are so many people who believe the opposing thing. The other thing I wanted to say, which Keith makes a parenthetical remark about, which I thought was really intriguing, was this idea that there's no um, opposing irreligious experience, as it were. So, so he doesn't think there's such a thing, but I, but I also wondered, wonder whether that's right. I think, I mean, it depends on what we think religious experience is, but I think many have had a kind of, you know, similarly profound and moving sort of experience that left them feeling as if, you know, there was nothing, right? That, that I'm all alone in, in this universe and there's nothing more than this. So, so that seems to be a, a kind of, a kind of companion. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be a kind of companion experience where, where on the one hand you might come to think that that there has to be more and a particular sort of more, but the other is a kind of very, kind of I don't know maybe nihilistic experience. So, on to, to religious experience. So, as I said, Keith thinks this is the best chance 
someone has of knowing whether God exists, but he thinks it's not going to work out. So what's going on there? One, one thing, things that I think are worth thinking about is I'm not sure how we're supposed to think of religious experience. So I take it, it's necessary that, you know, James says it has this noetic property, so we come away feeling, with a feeling of knowing um, that God exists. So it has to have a conclusion, it's not just the, some feelings, and then afterwards it's over. So, so the feelings have to lead to, to a kind of feeling of knowing. So I wonder whether more is required, though. So often they're described in various ways, you know, as mystical kind of experiences, ineffable in these ways. So are those, are those bits important? And I guess this is important if we're going to think of this as a kind of unified kind or method. We'd like to be able to say what it is. Is it just an experience that leads you to a strong feeling of knowing that God exists or, or more? And of course, there's questions about what the conclusion has to be, how specific is it. So I think it's important, important to get the kind clear. So why should we think at least initially, that this, this kind of method might give us knowledge. Um, I think the idea, uh, as far as I understand, is that they, are, they seem to be a unified kind, um, and they leave people um, convinced that God exists. So you have a certain kind of experience, and the result of this is, is certainty or an extreme conviction that God exists. And I guess there's a the thought that that this kind of looks like other sorts of experiences and their output, so maybe we should kind of default trust it. So, so in visual experience, I have a certain kind of experience, and it leaves me with a really strong conviction that, that um, those bottles exist. So, so maybe this is, this is the model, and we're kind of allowed to default trust it. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe that's, that's right, but I think especially in light of the sort of pressure Keith just put on philosophical arguments, it feels to me that, that there are tons of defeaters around. So it felt like in the case of philosophical arguments, the thought was, well, here are some arguments, but there are some on the other side, so these arguments can't get us knowledge. Even if you believe as a result of them, somehow the, the counter views count as defeaters. But, but it seems to me there's going to be tons of defeaters here too. So even if there's a default, default trust, I don't, I don't see, and even if we think of this as a reliable method, Right, I, I kind of said this to Keith. It seems maybe, maybe this person's in no better position than like Bonjour's Norman, who maybe uses this reliable method, but, but there's tons of reason to think it's not, and, and it's not clear why this, why this would get him knowledge, unless you're like a really hardcore reliabilist or no defeatist, which maybe some of us here are, but, but I don't think Keith is. Um, so anyway, maybe this is moot, because Keith doesn't think that this method is going to get you knowledge in the end. I have three reasons here. The main one he has is, is this thought about what happens when people leave the fold, as it were. So he says, one of the things that he's noticed when, when people move away from, from um, being believers is that they look back and think, actually, I wasn't all that convinced. Um, I was acting as if I was really convinced that God existed, but, but I wasn't as convinced as I was making it seem. I had this experience, and it, and it led me to this belief, but it wasn't as strong, and, and I was kind of pretending in a way. Um, and, and I think... And I think he thinks this is a powerful reason to think that the method can't get people knowledge. Um, but I guess I wonder, I, I don't know, I, don't, I wonder what these people say. Because, I mean, if it's just that, like, I was pretty convinced but not totally convinced, then, then that might still be a good method. Um, so the fact that you're not totally convinced um, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't seem to me that, like, absolute conviction needs to be the output of a method, but maybe strong conviction does. So, so I don't know if, if people are saying they didn't even have that or whether this really impugns the kind. I think more pressing, Keith gives other reasons. It looks like this method leads to inconsistent beliefs, so some people believe these things about their religion, and another 
other people believe these things about their religions and, and these things are not compatible. So prima facie, the method's unreliable. Uh, and, he, and he remarks also that there's a lack of coherence with everyday experience. So unlike visual perception, which coheres well with the rest of our experience, these, these experiences don't really cohere well. So I think he leaves it open, though, that, that someone could know by way of this method, but he's, he's skeptical that anyone's going to get there for these reasons. And, and uh, that, that seems compelling to me. Um, he thinks that, that we're in a somewhat similar situation with respect to our philosophical positions. So we don't know those eithers, either. More strongly, we don't even believe them. Here's, here's the case that he gives. I'm curious what people are going to think about it. So, so he gives a couple of cases where involving aliens. So, so Keith, an incompatibilist, you know, meets up with some aliens and they say, they say Keith, uh, we know whether compatibilism or incompatibilism is true. And we're going to ask you that question, whether it is true or false. You have to answer. Now there's two cases. In case one, if you refuse to answer or you get it wrong, we're going to destroy the earth. Everyone's going to die, including you. Um, but if you get it right, you know, everyone's going to be okay. Um, case two, if you refuse to answer or if you get it wrong, you'll get nothing. But if you get it right, you'll get a million dollars. So Keith says a few things here. I'm, I'm not going to say all of them. He says in, until recently, so I think he's changed his view on this, and maybe it's important to think about what's changed it, he would have been strongly inclined to go with the majority opinion, which I take it as compatibilism, I don't know, rather than his own view. So he's in this position. Uh, all this is at stake. He really thinks compatibilism. Well, maybe he doesn't really think compatibilism. He was ar previously arguing for incompatibilism and acting as if he knew incompatibilism. But I, I am a mess. <laughs> and then, but then when, when it comes down to this, he's going to go, he's going to press the compatibilism button. That's the answer he's going to go with because he's, he's, he's going to go with the majority view. And he thinks this shows that he didn't ever really believe in compatibilism. Um, so, so, so obviously these, are, these cases are worrying for familiar reasons, right? These are extremely strange and high stakes cases and it's unclear how, whether we're supposed to, what, what we should take them to show about ordinary everyday belief. Um, so, so I think those are, those are kind of familiar worries. I mean, it's worrying that, that maybe we're not going to believe anything at all if we use this test or really believe anything at all. Or maybe we have to say what really believes. I think kind of potential worries lurking are, is this asymmetry between, between the majority view and, and the other. So, so if all my views coincide with the majority view, then by this test, maybe I get to really believe them. Or if I don't know what the majority view is, then then by this test, I get to believe them. So, so I think I'm kind of worried about, about the test for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think even though we don't believe, Keith also thinks that if we did believe, we still wouldn't know. So I think it's overdetermined that we don't know. So it's not just that we don't know because we don't believe or really believe. Um, he thinks either way, we wouldn't know. So what's going on in, in philosophy then? So. Um, None of us know our philosophical positions. We don't even really believe them, but, but we go around yelling at each other about them and saying this is the case and that's the case. So, so this seems a bit weird. What's really going on um, in, in our philosophical discussion? So Keith says, not to worry. You don't really believe any of those things either. Um, so, so there's no tension here. Um, we're, we're kind of playing a game where where. Um, we all know that this is a kind of pretense, and we're pretending to take up these views in some substantial way, even though 
we're not really, right? And he says, look, in these cases, expert opinion or majority opinion or dissenting opinion, any of these things, don't have the same weight on us as they would in this alien case when a lot is at stake. But that's okay um, because they're not real beliefs. So we don't have to defer to, defer to the expert or, or defer to the majority um, because these aren't real views. Um, I, I, don't, I, guess, I guess I just wonder whether this kind of resonates with people about what's going on in philosophy. Um, you know, he also says, look, this is why it's okay to assert all sorts of things, even though he likes a knowledge norm on assertion. So, so I wonder what people think about this. I think um, Keith, Keith says, you know, putting a positive spin on this, that this, this kind of arguing, um, despite not really believing these things, is good for philosophical progress. Um, but I guess I want to hear more about what that's going to amount to for you. So I guess when I think about philosophical progress, I think, I think, of, it, I think of it as, you know, uh, adding to, to our knowledge, getting more of that. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're, I guess I could see ways that, where that's compatible with your view, but, but there's a worry lurking here that you're saying, we don't know these things. Um, are we trying to know them? What's it going to take to know them? Do we need agreement? Um, and, and if we're not really aiming to build on our knowledge or aiming to get knowledge, then what's the sense in which, in which philosophy progresses in this way, or, or I guess at all? Okay, thanks. I'm up. All right, so I think I should just um, spend my few minutes um, directly answering some of the questions that call for clarification. Um, um, so first and most importantly, I think this didn't come out um, very well um, in the appendix thing. Um, the, um, you know, the reason for doubting that we really believe these things has mainly to do with um, um, that we don't really believe them and we don't really have the degree of confidence we project about them as well. Um, has mainly to do with um, how much projected confidence there is in philosophy and other areas of great controversy um, um, in such close proximity to such a high degree of disagreement and controversy. Um, um, when you, and as I said, it, it varies from situation to situation. You have philosophical discussions, and now you should start listening for this in um, philosophy conferences and debates and stuff, where everybody's being very um, humble, epistemically humble, and they're throwing in all their hedges, and this is, I think, I, I, but you will also hear in many of these situations, it, that deteriorates, and what happens is you've got one bold asserter, and then everybody else is being run over by this bold asserter, and they start dropping their hedges and start talking very confidently. And eventually you get a whole room full of people talking as if they know things that obviously no one's in any position anywhere near to knowing. Um, and yet, the, you know, blasting away. Um, so it is, and that's actually part of it as well, that it's um, kind of situation dependent. Um, so, oh, I need, um, this has been, um, here, here, tying things together um, 
from the two pieces. Um, as far as I can tell, and I'm just starting to look into this, there's a lot more work in psychology on religious belief. Um, and so one thing I've been reading largely because it gets you into some of the psychological literature is, um, is a thing by um, a philosopher, I think at George, Georgia State, Neil Van Lewin, Lewin, he's got a lot of vowels in his name, I don't know how to pronounce it, L-E-E, -E. anyway, so he has this thing, religious credence is not factual belief, and it's in two, Cognition 2014, you can look it up, it's largely its value is it, it'll point you to a lot of the psychological literature. Um, and I think the case is better in religious belief largely for the reason that there's more, there's been more work done on it. But in like philosophical and other academic situations, um, you don't, in the case of religious belief, you get this consideration in favor of thinking that they really believe that you don't get in academic and philosophical situations, which is, in the case of religious belief, you've got lots of people who are really giving up a lot and um, re like really putting their acceptances on the line um, and living by them in certain very impressive ways, um, which I think, and Van Leeuwen, Leeuwen kind of dismisses that pretty quickly, but he does bring it up. And um, 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 so I think in, in light of that, it, it's likely to turn out that the religious belief, the religious acceptors, I should say, turn out to have maybe a better case for being true believers than your typical philosopher. Um, um, but some of the considerations are the same, that these, your attitude, or at least what attitude you project, seems in such funny ways dependent on little quirky details of the situation, like how assertive the person you are arguing with is. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, this is all speculation of course, but I'm pretty sure studies would show this about philosophers. They, they act incredibly confident when they are facing an opponent who is acting incredibly confident on the other side. Um, and at least many of some will be blustery no matter what. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of us will become very um, conciliatory and hedging and humble when faced with a humble opponent. Um, and it's very weird that what our, whether we believe it or not could depend on something like that. Something so, something that comes and goes um, in that way. Um, and that's one of the considerations, of course, that the um, psychologists are focusing in on in religious belief. That in many cases, um, the signs of belief come and go with different situations. Um, in ways that make it look like you don't have real belief going on here. Um, okay, so quickly I should clear up, um, um, well, I don't know, clear up, address. Um, it seems to me on the term agnostic, which, it, which is kind of, I think, an interesting issue in its own right. And I, I imagine there's stuff out there I should know about but don't. Um, but it does seem to me there should be um, a useful use of that term which is pretty directly tied to not knowing. Um, I think the term was coined by Huxley in uh, around 1870, so it's a fairly re recent vintage. 
And I think it, I think it just, where it comes from kind of suggests it just should mean something very close to not knowing. Um, and, but it, it has taken on a bit of a life of its own. So if my suspicion that nobody knows, or nobody I know knows whether God exists, um, turns out to be true, it would still be absurd for me to describe all these people as agnostics, although I think none of them know. Um, so, um, so what I had was doesn't take themselves to know, and, and for the reasons um, Jane gave, and, and is in her, in some of her published work, I saw this coming, you know, that that's no good. Um, um, not, doesn't take herself to know is no good. Takes herself not to know is better. Um, but I think, I think we get something workable and pretty good and pretty tightly tied to not knowing if we do it in terms of doesn't even take herself to know, which would be doesn't know and doesn't take herself to know. Um, and I, I think that would answer to, I think, a lot of people's use of the term. You know um, what the kid says to his parents that gets them so worried. You know, his, his believing parents are so called believing parents. Oh, I'm an agnostic now. Well, you know, what does that mean? And, and I think pretty close to capturing it might be this doesn't even take, you don't even take yourself to know, which you don't know and you don't take yourself to know. I think that might get it pretty close. Um, and certainly on that reading, I am a paradigm case of an agnostic. Unless I happen to know without knowing it, but you know, um, that would be kind of weird because I don't know which side I do know to be <laughs> correct. Um, so, um, um, but I also think there's got to be a use of the term which, uh, on which I wouldn't count as agnostic. Um, and, and I think, I think this ties in, I was looking up online, I think Bertrand Russell had some remarks about what it means, and, and people throw out, it turns out if you look at some you know, historical uses, people throw out as kind of synonymous um, two different things, at least they come apart for me, and one is like not knowing, or as I want to do it now, doesn't even take oneself to know, um, and the other is um, takes no position or, you know, doesn't accept either position. Um, and I think that, that would be the useful kind. For me, it comes apart in an important way because I am not an agnostic in that second way. You know, I take a position, but I, I see it as like a, taking a position as I do in other areas of philosophy. Um, in the religious case, it has other aspects, you know, right? taking a position, kind of gets you into some kind of community where there's certain expectations and so forth. But it's also very much like taking a philosophical position. I think it's a kind of acceptance which is much more responsive to the will than belief is. Um, it's kind of up to you what you accept. Um, and uh, yeah, you can choose to accept or not to accept. I mean, I know we also say you can choose to believe, but I think we're not speaking very well in that case. Um, 
All right, now on, um, okay, two more things, maybe three. Um, so, oh, so the main reason for doubting that we really believe these things, as I say, or really are as confident as we project, um, as I said, has to do with um, the close proximity of all this projected confidence with all the disagreement and controversy. Um, but in a special case, um, you get this, and by special case, I just mean that this isn't all the cases in the scope of my thesis, but it's also not very odd. Um, um, in these special cases, you get this funny occurrence that I think, I, this would be hard to test empirically, but I imagine it could be, um, but it would take a lot of thinking, a lot of clever thinking. So it's speculation. But in my own case, I think it's pretty well-grounded speculation. You get this funny thing that when something was really riding on it, you would actually flip. Okay, now that's only gonna happen um, in the cases where you're like, in the minority and like there's a strong majority lined up against you. Um, um, and I do believe the people who take the majority position and so would give their own position to the aliens in, those, in these cases um, also don't really believe their position. But they don't get the flipping. The flipping is just this special thing that happens um, in you know, this subset of cases where you're in the minority Things seem very strong, like for me, it seemed very clear when I thought about it that incompatibilism was right, but then I see other people, that they know all the considerations I know, it strikes them very differently. Many of them have studied, had studied it much more than me. Um, and so I would go with them in that case, go with the majority. And if you tell me you wouldn't, I really don't want the aliens getting you and putting our fate in your hands. Because um, really, think about it. What you've got is you've got all the relevant considerations. You put them into your head. You jumble it up, and you come out with this gestalt. I, I'm considering all this stuff. I know the main arguments. And I'm inclined to think, and then now comes the minority view. And that's really what you've got going. <laughs> and you shouldn't like be putting how you're inclined to process all that up against what the clear majority of the experts who've studied it much more than you, how they're inclined to process it all. And you're going to go with yourself. Um, I very much want the aliens not getting you if you're in that camp. Um, um, you are among the most deluded of philosophers. <laughs> it is really sad and pathetic. <laughs> um, don't be that way. <laughs> um, okay, so quick, I had to like get it a little more controversial there. So. <laughs> um, Philosophical progress, so um, yes, I believe in it, but I, I really do take seriously this thought. It's not like an analysis of what philosophy is or what philosophers are, so it's not like it's going to be a, 
necessary and sufficient conditions. There, of course, will be counterexamples and stuff. But I think a good line on what philosophers tend to have that ties us together and would explain why we would be in the same department studying these wildly divergent things is what kind of ties us together is we've all developed an ability to do something intelligent with questions that nobody is in a position to give a knowledgeable answer to. And that's really good. I th don't think of that as a bad thing, right? I mean, as long as we're interested in these questions that nobody knows the answer to, it's good to have people who can um, you know, at least come up with some good reasons for taking one side or the other. So, so there is progress. I don't, I would not describe the arguments on both sides of the issue of whether God exists or on most philosophical issues. I wouldn't describe the arguments on both sides as lousy, although I think I may use that term. I, I'm just getting carried away. <laughs> um, they're, they're nowhere near to producing knowledge, but they're pretty good. I admire them. It's amazing people could come up with good reasons like that for something so esoteric. You know, we so we shouldn't, shouldn't be thinking of this as like a slur against philosophy. Oh, they're dealing with stuff that they don't even know. Well, of course, somebody's got to deal with that garbage. That's what we do. Um, and, and the other thing of progress is, um, as, I mean, I did not work at all on drawing the line. I just say something about we don't know our controversial positions. But it is true, and this is, I think the Gary Gutting in his book, What Philosophers Know, does some work trying to draw the line. But um, as we make our progress, we do generate some knowledge on the side. And it really is philosophical knowledge. It's just not knowledge that this position or that position is correct. It's knowledge that this is an important distinction. There's a distinction between this and this that's very important to answering this question. Here's, a, we know now, some relevant considerations. We now know certain arguments were lousy. We do come to know that, um, or are no good anymore. Um, we come to know certain mistakes were made. We generate a lot of side knowledge as we futilely strive toward knowing the thing, and, and typically we don't come to know the, the answer to the question we're focused on. But the progress consists in, first, we, we do come up with good reasons, not knowledge producing, but good, and second, we get all this side knowledge. I don't know how valuable it is. I, I tend to think it's pretty valuable, but then I'm a philosopher. Um, so yeah, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't describe the philosophical arguments as lousy. I wouldn't think we're wasting our time. I don't think what we're doing is not valuable. Start looking at it positively. Isn't it wonderful to have people who can like come up with reasons good reasons for or against accepting these kinds of things. Good Lord, that's like a very noble thing. So, so it shouldn't be taken as denigrating the field. Um, 
Finally, Norman. Okay, so this, I, I, I won't try to tie it in with all the considerations, but I just, um, it, I think it should help in seeing how, um, how I would answer some of the questions I'm not going to have time to answer here. But um, um, Bonjour's Norman has been for me, and, and I just reread it last night. I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, so, um, but to check, um, I've always known, um, since I read it, so this was in the Midwest Studies paper originally. I think it came out somewhere else later. He's reworked it. But um, um, it has always been for me like a prime example of the kind of case that we should, I'll put this strongly, um, we should refuse to have any intuitions about. Because it involves, I mean, here's the description. Um, Norman, who's like a, has clairvoyant powers, it turns out perfectly reliable. But this is what you end up stipulating, what Bonjour ends up stipulating. He, the Norman, possesses no evidence or reasons of any kind for or against the general possibility of such a cognitive power or for or against the thesis that he possesses it. And my God, I don't even know what I'm imagining. How could you not have any reason or evidence one way or the other? What's going on with this guy? He has this power, he comes to have these beliefs, and nothing in his experience counts for or against? You know, I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be thinking. I tried, it was not quite this thesis, but a related thesis. I tried to come up with a case for testing certain theories about the epistemology of perception. I tried to get it so the person involved has no reason for or against thinking that their sense faculties are reliable. And to do that, I had, I don't know if I succeeded, but I thought the way to do it would be to try to imagine that they just have experiences very sporadically. Right, sensation and form of belief here and there. It doesn't really fit together in any positively coherent way, but it's also not like clashing any kind of, and you end up with a case. That's what I thought you had to do to maybe have a prayer of getting someone who has no reason one way or the other. And I ended up with a case too weird to trust my intuitions about, although then I said what they were. Um, um, in, Norman, in the Bonjour's case, Norman case, I get the feeling I'm not supposed to be imagining him in his some kind of super weird position. But then I don't know how to get him to not have any reasons or evidence of any kind. I mean, that's just quoting Bonjour. For or against. I think he'd have to be in an incredibly weird position for that description to be accurate of him. Um, and yet, I get the feeling I'm not supposed to be imagining him in an incredibly weird position. So look, this wouldn't be someone who had no evidence for or against, but you start imagining somebody who has reliable clairvoyant powers. Um, and they never, it never comes up. They never find out that other people don't have it. Somehow their experience goes, so they just assume everybody has it. Um, 
never really contradicts what they learn from their other experience, or at least no more than like their other sense modalities. Um, um, I start imagining it that way. Norman is justified. I mean, I'm no crass reliableist. I believe in, um, in I'm an internalist about justification. I just think here, you would be justified because, I don't know, it's the same way you're justified in believing your um, perceptual beliefs. You're inclined to believe them. Nothing really comes up that shows they're wrong. I think that's the story of how we, I, I'm just a conservative at heart. I think that's the story of how we ever come to have justified beliefs. And um, if you've got your clairvoyant fitting into that story, well then they'd be justified in, um, in their clairvoyant beliefs. But what happens is we imagine the clairvoyant being in many ways like us. If I suddenly started having these impulses toward belief that were not coming through my normal senses, I should be suspicious. And if I irresponsibly went with these urges, I'd be pretty, pretty good case of an unjustified believer. Um, I should stop there, so thanks.